The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, I'm Ben Luke, and for this week's Art Newspaper Podcast, I'm at the Barbican in London, one of three London galleries with very different shows united by a single medium, photography. Later in the podcast, we look at the exhibition of artists shortlisted for the Deutsche Börse Prize at the Photographer's Gallery. We also discuss Victorian Giants, the National Portrait Gallery's exhibition looking at four pioneers of photography in its early years, including Julia Margaret Cameron and Lewis Carroll. But first, Another Kind of Life, a new exhibition here at the Barbican in London, explores photographs of individual people and communities existing on the margins of society, from India to America and Nigeria to the Ukraine. These might be self-selecting outlaws in countercultural movements or those forced to the fringes through disadvantage or oppression. Among the most powerful bodies of work in the exhibition is the series Adam's Apple by Paz Erasuriz, depicting transgender sex workers in Chile just at the moment when General Pinochet's murderous military hunter was at its worst. I spoke to Erasuriz in the exhibition. Paz, I wonder if we might begin by exploring what life was like in Chile in, 19, in the early 1980s. Well, I first uh, worked with, uh, with we, we formed a group with uh, some photographers, sort of resistant, you know, yeah. uh, resisting dictatorship. And uh, our way to, to work was in the street, and we, we formed a formal group called Association of Independent Photographers just to protect ourselves. So that was my, my beginning, you know, as a photographer, this experience in, in the street. And how did you come to meet, because th- these people are transgender sex workers, yeah. how did you come to meet them? Did you just, did you just see them around you? Um, well, it, it, not, not that much so. In fact, I, I wanted to, to investigate into prostitution. I mean, a very personal project and very personal interest and I studied with uh, women prostitutes working in brothels. And, uh, well, after I had uh, quite a lot of work with them, <coughs> they made me promise never to show those photographs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was a very uh, uncomfortable moment. And, I, well, I made that promise that I was not going to show those photographs. It was like private problems for them. And uh, there I was introduced to, to a group of uh, prostitute transvestites that uh, fortunately they liked the idea, you know, to work with photography. And I became very close friends with, with them, uh, two brothers especially, this Pilar and Evelyn. And that's how I started to work with with them so deeply because I got very involved with with a group, with a family, the mother, which was very important. Uh, she was a very important character in, in 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 this group. You know, she joined. She 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 had the the, the particularity to to be so nice to everybody. So they met at their house. So you know, that's how it started. And did you did you seek to gain their trust before you started taking photographs, or were you taking fo- photographs right from the yeah. start? No, not not exactly. It's not the way I worked. I I tried to explain them f- first. You know, my my idea, my project, to interview. You know, a lot of conversations and. Uh, 
In fact, I had a so so wonderful conversation. I started recording all this, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought I could do it myself, record and, and write and do the photographs. But after a year, I thought it was not possible anymore. And I invited a friend, a journalist friend called Claudia Donoso to work with me. So she joined me in this project and, and we went on together. You know, she, she did all, most of the recordings we, we needed and that's how I, I, we managed to have this book, you know. Once you had established that trust and started making the photographs in earnest, how were you producing the actual photographs? Because obviously this would have been very difficult under that regime. Uh, you mean printing and all yes, that? Well, yeah. I, do, I did all that myself, you know. I, I mean, I couldn't possibly trust anybody else. <laughs> and, um, of course, I always gave them, you know, photographs of, uh, of what I was doing, or portraits of that they never liked very much because they were black and white. <laughs> you know, it's always, sometimes it happens that way. Well, finally, you know, after four years, I had an exhibition, like in an experimental gallery, uh, and they all came to the exhibition, and, and uh, it, it was, for them, it was a, a good experience, definitely. And, and they, they got part of the book, too, so they could sell it. And the book was censored, and it was not possible to, to have it in bookstores, so the book, in fact, disappeared. Right. <laughs> yes. Was, was there a sense in which you felt at all threatened in exhibiting the works? Was it, I mean, it must have been something of a risk to have actually exhibited those works and to make something public out of this. Yeah, but... You know, you you learn how to move in in in, in the situation. So, an an artist in general had a way of working that you you have to manage to sort out all, all these problems with militaries. That, in fact, they 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 didn't approach much art in general. In a sense, you established a kind of way of working where you avoided some of the complications. Yeah. I mean, and I had already had the experience of having my house searched by the militaries and being menaced and, and all, all those uh, things that happened to people that stayed, that were against the regime but stayed in Chile. And uh, you, you sort of learn a bit how to manage, really, and be careful and how to avoid uh, Mostly in art is very metaphorically that <laughs> you start speaking against something, and uh, um, well, it, it wasn't in fact dangerous directly. Of course, they, some of them, were persecuted very badly um, immediately after the coup. In fact, I mean, the stories they told me are, are very horrifying and. Uh, they also knew how to get away, you know, how to escape from police constantly. I noticed that you shot sometimes on black and white, but there are colour photographs here too. 
How did you work out when to use each? You know, it, the color, it, it was um, a necessity because the, we didn't have enough film in those days. So you had to work with whatever you, you could manage. And in fact, those color photographs, at the beginning, I never looked at them. I, I had them uh, for years. They're they not in my book, for the first book because it's a second edition that they were integrated and discovered by friends. They said, well, you have to... For instance, this photograph of Evelyn there that I like very much, I hadn't seen it till, let's say, six years ago. You know, I never looked at those. I had them all in a box, fortunately, and some of them were in good shape. Right. (laughs) So it, it, for me, it's, this color is also new. Right. It's, uh, that's fascinating. To what extent was that a decision about somehow a black and white photography being a more authentic voice and mm-hmm. color photography having a more kind of, um, having a less authentic uh, yeah, idea? Yeah, for me, it, it meant that I did all the work myself. I couldn't trust this to anybody else because once, for instance, the same color, when I had them developed in a in a little place, they, they scratched them on purpose, they kind of censored. Right. And uh, that could happen, imagine, with any other uh, film. So, and I liked very much to print my own photography, really. I mean, developing for me was part of, uh, of the whole thing, you know. When you were m- making the work, did you very much see this as, a, as, an, art, as an art project as, a, as opposed to photojournalism or reportage? You know, I always called them essays, you know. I, I, now I call them series because I worked like that for a long time with one subject, I call them series. But uh, these and other, I always thought they were essays that I never thought they had been finished or not, and you know, investigating. So I didn't know where to to put them, you know. And in, 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 in on the other hand, photography in my country was not really uh, looked at properly. You know, it had like a second. Uh, Look, I mean, it wasn't part of art world, and so I and and I didn't show them very much. A couple of, of these photographs were shown, so I never really worried where to to describe my my work. You know, they're now in major collections, including the Tate here in London. Was that an important moment to be collected by museums, to see you by, recognised by all in means, it? yes. I mean, the fact that a museum could, could have this work is very important, and uh, um, I'm very glad for photography. I mean, the status photography can have in my country is very important, yes. And, uh, and I, me, myself, as a photographer, being part of the... the the art collection, you know, it's very meaning. So I'm going to end talking about a very sad part of this story, which is what happened to the individuals we see surrounding us in the photographs, because not only were they having to deal with the social pressures of the regime, mm-hmm. but AIDS yeah, began very, to do. Exactly. That's, that's a the big tragedy, because AIDS was 
in those days, you know, it was the, the, just the conscience of AIDS, and uh, they were not educated properly about the subject, and uh, so they didn't care too much about it, and um, except Coral, she, who's a good friend of mine, the, the only one that survived the whole group, you know, they all died of AIDS. Yeah, so... so it's very tragic, very, very tragic. And, uh, um, for instance, Coral, um, she, she was... She's a very smart person, and, and she really took care of herself and, and could follow the program of, of AIDS med- medicine, you know, the... So she 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 has a Parkinson. She she's you know affected by it, but but very bright and working in the, in, a, in in the country now as a farmer with a family. Well, that's a that's one it's, it's piece of good news. It's very fantastic. She represents all of them for me. And uh, well, your photographs do too, though. I mean, that's an, another important aspect. Yes, this was a very contemporary body of work at one stage, but also these photographs now act as a memorial to these people's lives. Yeah, definitely. And um, in those days, nobody would care about this work. And and, um, it's so good that it could happen, you know, this way. Paz, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you. Another Kind of Life, Photography on the Margins, is at the Barbican Art Gallery until the 27th of May. Now, the Photographer's Gallery has, since 1997, hosted a prize for the latest developments in contemporary photography. Sponsored since 2005 by the Deutsche Börse Group, the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, it brings together four artists each year, working in the very broad range of disciplines that have come to represent photography in the 21st century. This year's shortlist includes the French-Venezuelan artist Mathieu Asselin, the Polish photographer Raphael Milak, Swiss-born Batia Suter and Luke Willis-Thompson, a London-based New Zealander. I spoke to Brett Rogers, the Photographer's Gallery Director and Chair of the Prize Jury, about this year's shortlist. And what it seemed to me was the fiendish difficulty in judging work of four very distinct artists. Brett, I wonder if we could start by talking about this year's prize. Can you tell us something about the shortlisted artists? Mm-hmm. Well, we're very excited because this year's prize list is, represents four uh, artists who are very unknown, even in the UK. And one of them, Luke Willis-Thompson, was unknown to anybody on the jury until they saw his striking images that were submitted uh, in the shortlist. So um, it does really, really break new ground, I think, because there's no obvious winner. This year, it's a very much a level playing field because they're all sort of at the same time of their career. They might be older or younger, but in terms of their practice. Do you issue any kind of clear instruction to the jury to look for artists, to seek out artists who aren't especially well known? I remind the jury that this is not a Lifetime Achievement Award and that even though work has been or bodies of work have been submitted that represent a full retrospective, that this is not necessarily the award for that sort of work. There's something called the Hasselblad Award that has traditionally over the last, since 1980, awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award and many other things such as Photo London do that, have a Master of Photography every year. Our award really is for the most outstanding body of work produced in the last year. So I keep reminding them that, you know, you have to be satisfied that on the night when we get stand up and give the award to somebody, that you are happy to give it for that particular body of work. Now, one of the 
crucial aspects of that is that you're dealing both with exhibitions and publications. And one of the things that I love about the Deutsche Börse Prize is that it always has a really strong commitment to books. The Deutsche Book element, actually, Ben, is only five years old because right. it's just taking on, just like, just to go back to the history of the prize, it was it was um, created in 1996 at a time when Dusseldorf School were really influencing photography and where we could see the position between art and photography coming together so closely. And so it was timely to have such a, a prize um, in, in the UK. And so, really, in recognition, the photo book wasn't wasn't part of it until the last five years. And because of the photo book phenomenon that we're all so conscious of and we're all so excited by, that's only been part of it for the last five years. But we love it too. And we love the fact that this year it's two of the four nominees are for a book. Um, and uh, that excites us, although obviously presents problems when you're trying to transfer a book to the walls. Some of our listeners may not know about the photo book phenomenon. Phenomenal. So can you tell yes. me more about that? Um, really inspired by cheaper publishing, digital publishing and, you know, the DIY revolution in photography, um, making things much easier to produce your own photo books. Um, and also a very strong tradition, say, in Japanese photography, where the main platform for Japanese photography since the 60s in circulating their work is through the photo book. Um, a new generation of uh, students and artists have been influenced by that to to consider that the photo book is as good a platform as an exhibition in which to present a new body of work. And so over the last decade, we've seen the, the growth of this, exponential growth of it, to the point where really we our bookshop could just be full of independent artists' publications, all produced in very small numbers, between 30 and 300. And occasionally some of these, ca- you know, catch the buzz, you know, go viral and sell out within minutes and they become very collectible items. And very, you know, um, uh, often, often, you know, we're, we're searching for a book um, from a time before and they're completely out of print. So um, we're very excited that it offers uh, photographers new platforms for exploration. And the way you present your, your project in a book is very, very dif- different to how you might be considering it if you did it as prints on a wall. So that's one of the things you have to grapple with when you come to make the show for yes. the shortlist, isn't it? Because, and for instance, Mathieu, the, one of the artists in this year's show, shortlisted for a book mm-hmm. and... Uh, his his project is very broad in terms of its materials. There's archival materials. There's original photography. There's, there's text. Film. Yep. There's film. There you go. So so I guess having the photo book as a phenomenon, how do you then think? I make sure the jury doesn't worry about the curating. I have fabulous photo- uh, curators here, and they're very good at translating those ideas in onto the wall. Some of the people have never done an exhibition. Laura Elta Tamwe last the, the year before last had never done an exhibition. So she'd only produced this incredible book. So for her, it was as much a learning experience for her to work with a curator who really transformed her understanding of the work and how it might be presented through both moving images and still. So we we regard that as part of the whole process. And the interesting thing about DUE, about bringing these artists to attention who perhaps have never had an exhibition because the project has only existed as a book. But you're right, Mathieu Asselin's project is so vast. But then Batia Suter's encyclopedia is also vast. Tell me about um, Batia Sita's piece, because I, what I loved about it was as you're walking around the room, you're making associations between these found images and it, mm-hmm. and, and it tests this human desire to classify. 
but it always throws in red herrings. Left exactly. Right she, she, she herself has collected all this from her vast array of books that she has collected. I suppose in a way, I sort of see it as her own personal search engine, you know, the equivalent of Google, that she has created. It's an art of sensibility and, and of course, dealing with the actual object on the page. I think that's what makes it so different and the image is so resonant on the wall that each of them has come from and been scanned from the from another book and that's why she loves to have that physicality of the object on the wall and the way she puts everything together again we had no idea before she arrived how she would do that installation but I think the, the tempo it's rather musical and and rather the way it evolves around the space she's she's created a, a new experience of the of the book through through the installation here and really stark con- contrast to both Batia and indeed Mathieu's work is is in Luke Willis Thompson's film, where whereas their work is multi layered, you've got lots of imagery. With his work, you have a single film in the space, and it features a single person. So tell me more about that. It's it's so pared back, isn't it? Both Raphael and Luke are both sort of nearly laboratory like. You know, it's like going into a scientific laboratory after the Mathieu's uh, um, and um, Batia's, and we love that contrast on both floors. Um, and Luke, Luke, of course, using this very enhanced uh, image of um, Diamond Reynolds, is um, creating a confrontation with the person we've all come become come to know through only through her social media representation. Mm. And so to, to step back and think of her in this other way um, as an individual with this incredible dignity, but clearly undergoing the grief of losing her boyfriend, is is something quite you know that he does so successfully in the in this piece and you need to stay with it you don't need to be have a lot of people in there um and it's very important of course that the physicality of the 35 mil camera technology is there beside you as a, nearly as a sculpture to remind you of the human being in this you know the scale of of the of the what what happened so just to remind our listeners diamond reynolds witnessed her boyfriend being shot by a policeman in this was in the US and she chose to facebook live what happened and it became obviously an enormous phenomenon and and she became known for this very specific social media activity and Luke in a way his work challenges that. Mm -hmm. He he reframes her and gives her back her personal individuality and her dignity through the way that he's posed her especially the fact that it's silent and you're expecting her in fact her lips do move so you're wondering what is going on in her mind, but there's a very strong psychological intensity about the piece because you think she must be thinking about the, the incident and losing her partner. Um, and, you know, it's, it, the way it's framed, I, I do feel uh, alone in the room with, with Diamond just there and the, and the way that she's posed, it does remind me very much of religious imagery like a Madonna. Indeed, that's one of the things that I'm reminded of all the way through this show is that there are all sorts of historical associations, whether it is a sort of natural history, history classification imagery, or indeed, as you say, a kind of classical art within, mm-hmm. within Luke's work. So there's, again, it, it, it speaks to the way that photographers today are mining a long, long history of imagery. Very much so, and especially in, say, in Raphael Milak's um, work from Poland, he's looking at post-Soviet culture, but also the uh, psychological manipulation that happened, not just through photography, but through these optical illusions that were made in chess schools and other schools in, in, that, in that region, and how, very subtly, the government was really manipulating the public in, into thinking certain things without them knowing. What hits you in, in Raphael's room is suddenly there's a lot of colour and very constructivist kind of 
toughness in the imagery, but also a very seductive colour. Exactly. To, to combine with incredible abstraction. So there's some of these, you know, there's some documentary images, but somehow they're much more pared back. And even the interiors of some of those scientific laboratories are very, very um, abstracted. Um, and I love that combined with the very strong colour and the clinical whiteness of the whole space. I do feel as though you, you feel as though you've gone into a scientific laboratory and looking back on the history of those post-Soviet countries and all the tricks that the scientists and the government agencies were, were developing, um, unbeknownst to the population. Have you encountered sort of opposition to the prizes, uh, attention to the sort of vanguard of photography? Yes, definitely. Uh, because um, uh, over the years, I mean, it always has been from the time we, we uh, awarded Bet, uh, Richard Billingham and Andreas Kursky, always been looking at, you know, the artists who pushed the boundaries. But I would say that's mostly why other prizes have grown up in response to ours, because they feel that ours is pushing the boundaries too much and looking too much at the future. And so that's why we have Prepictae, which focuses on environmentalism. We have National Portrait Gallery Prize. We have Sony World Photography. This plethora of other prizes have grown up because they don't think that we sort of reflect the popular interest, you know, the, the, the general amateur photographer's interest in the breadth of photography. Um, but we don't mind about that. We think we have our own very um, defined position and it's very clear what ours is. And we, we offer, you know, the public an opportunity to see what's new and exciting. And I think that they appreciate that. Brett, thank you so much. Pleasure. The winner of the Deutsche Börse Photography Foundation Prize is announced on the 17th of May. And the exhibition is at the Photographer's Gallery until 3rd of June. I'm now in the National Portrait Gallery. When photography was only a few decades old, a disparate group of individuals formed an alliance that would break enormous ground in the medium. Lewis Carroll, Julia Margaret Cameron, Oscar Rielander and Lady Clementina Haywarden are gathered in a new exhibition, Victorian Giants, The Birth of Art Photography, at the National Portrait Gallery. It's curated by Philip Proger, head of photographs at the gallery, and I spoke to him in the show. Philip, the subtitle of this exhibition is The Birth of Art Photography. Tell me about the claim that you're making with that subtitle. Well, I'm not sure the intention was to make any claims, but to point out the stakes involved in the work that was being done at this time. We think of photography as being invented in 1839, and in a sense it was. That was the time when daguerreotype photography was invented and paper-negative photography as well. But for the first 12, 13 years, it was a very, very imperfect medium. And it wasn't until 1851 when Frederick Scott Archer invented the technique wet plate collodion glass photography, which enabled photographic emulsions to be put on glass, that all sorts of creative possibilities became uh, available that were not available before. And sometimes photography historians have referred to this as the second invention of photography, this shows, in a sense, about that reinvention of photography, reimagining the creative potential of what photography can be and where it fits in the place of arts. Is it something that uh, artists could bring into their arsenal as another tool in making uh, works of art? Is it something else? Does it live outside of the pantheon of arts? All of those things were at stake during this period of time, and it's something that I think the show really tries to evoke that sense of an avant-garde, of the dynamism of potentials that was out there for photographers to explore. 
And to what extent were the four individuals involved conscious that they were making art? To what extent was, this, was, was there an outward projection of art making? They were very conscious. In fact, that word, art, gets used again and again and again, and it becomes a kind of context for what they were trying to do. Now, of course, it's a, an ill-defined term, even now. So what they meant by art, I think, was in flux. And even in the Victorian imagination, more broadly, I think, the, the understanding of what qualifies as art was different from what it is today. But um, there, there were factions within the arts community and even within photography itself about what the proper role of photography was, whether it was itself a creative, expressive medium and this should be treated and respected in that way, or whether it's something that could be useful as a tool to, um, to assist real artists like painters and sculptors and, and draftspeople um, in making real art. Um, so that, that was something that, um, that goes back and forth, I think, even with these, within these four photographers. Sometimes they did supply their photographs to other artists to use as studies in making their work. But more often than not, they were interested in creating a new form of art, something that was very much in keeping with the times and something unlike uh, anything that had been made before. What was the establishment reaction to this? Did, was, there a, was there a space in which these things could be shown and debated and discussed? I think it depends what you mean by the establishment. Uh, one of the early patrons of the, uh, the artists in this show was the royal family itself. And Prince Albert, in particular, took a very sincere interest in the developments in art photography. We have on display in the exhibition one of the most famous photographs of this period called The Two Ways of Life. <clears throat> and it's said that uh, Queen Victoria actually purchased three copies of that photograph because they, she and Albert loved it so much. Unfortunately, the copies that they owned have since been lost. But that kind of royal patronage was very important to cultivating the kind of work that was been, being done here. Having said that, I think in museums, in the commercial world and so on, there was a debate that was raging. Um, and certainly at that time when world's fairs, like the Crystal Palace exhibition or the Manchester Art Treasures exhibition, were very much an important part of how work was shown, uh, photography was generally segmented and sent somewhere else. And that was hotly debated and... Um, Generally, it was accepted that maybe photography didn't belong, but there were others who felt that it did. If we could return to the two ways of life, could you describe that photograph and explain why it's so important? It's such an extraordinary thing. It was made around 1856-57. We don't know exactly when he completed it. It was meant as a kind of demonstration piece to show that the camera wasn't merely a tool for receiving information and transmitting what was received to the viewer, that it could actually be part of a conversation with an artist and that the artist could use it, bend the, the information received through the camera to his will or her will. What I mean by that, in particular with the two ways of life, <clears throat> is that uh, to make the composition, Relander assembled 32 different negatives 
and sort of synthetically stitched them together in a way that we would find really quite common now. Using Photoshop, it's quite, quite straightforward to do something like that. He did that um, manually, one by one, adding each negative to build up a composition that was extraordinarily complex. The idea behind the composition, though, was pretty straightforward. In the center of the composition, you have Oscar Rielander himself, and he's looking at two paths of life. On one side, there is a, a bad angel who's trying to, co to convince him to go to the dark side, where there's all sorts of vice. And on the other side is a good angel who's trying to convince him to, to come around to the side of virtue. And in order to illustrate that, the reason there were so many different negatives is there were little vignettes that showed different aspects of vice and virtue. So you get gambling and sloth and lasciviousness and thievery on one side and on the other side. You get um, learning and piety and chastity and modesty and so on. And each one of those had to be made using a different negative. Now... What's really interesting hearing you talking about this is because is that is that right from the start, photography is a creative medium. Now, somewhere along the line, photography became associated as a certainly in certain kinds of imagination as the medium of truth, the medium of reality, not necessarily a create as creative a medium as say painting. How did that happen? What 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 what's the difference between those these early years of photography and perhaps? Photography as a, as, a, as a medium of reportage or, of, or of, um, of news reporting. It's interesting, I think, to consider what was going on in painting discourse at the time. Of course, now we think of this, um, I think rightly, as a period of time when John Ruskin had a lot of influence. The pre-Raphaelite artists were just getting underway or were in full swing, really, at that point in history. And they wanted to return to that period of painting before Raphael when, generally speaking, painting was a very idealized uh, discipline that one always... It, it wasn't necessarily possible to recognize actual individuals because the painter was trying to create something that was a kind of archetype stitched together from information that they had gathered visually and made into something that was, in, in a sense, from their imaginations. The weird thing is that the photographers in this display um, I've rather mischievously labeled as post-Raphaelite because they were not interested in that at all. They were interested in forms of painting that were much more focused on the realistic, on the naturalistic things as they were actually observed. And for that reason, they turned to artists like Murillo in Spain, uh, Guido Reni in Italy, Rembrandt in Holland, the masters of the Baroque, and they were known for this aspect of really realistically portraying actual things as they were observable in real life. The irony of all of this is that the, these four photographers were drawing on this resource material of the Baroque, which the Pre-Raphaelites were absolutely dead set opposed to, but then they were selling their photographs to the Pre-Raphaelites who were using them as studies. But it's that tension between idealism and naturalism for want of better terms, that's really at play there, I think. Tell me about the relationship between the four individuals, because Relander is something of a sort of uh, teacher to the other three, is that right? 
Yeah, Rielander was the eldest, and among the four, he was the only one who had a commercial enterprise, although later on, uh, Julia Margaret Cameron would try to sell her photographs. In fact, um, when we visited the copyright registrations, uh, where, they're, they're, um, where they're registered at Kew, um, Julie Margaret Cameron had far more copyrights than any of the other photographers, including Rielander, who depended on it for his living. Um, yes, he was a, so he was a bit older. He was a bit more established. Maybe he had uh, more experience as a professional, and the others did come to him for advice. But I wouldn't want to suggest in, uh, that he, he somehow was leading the conversation all the time, because that's not the point at all. These were four photographers who exchanged information. One of the things that's uh, intriguing about the relationships between the four is actually what Rielander absorbed back into his practice, what he was learning from the people that, that were around him, including these, these three photographers. So it's really, I would say, an equal exchange, especially at the beginning, because Rielander was helping to teach them. But once Carol and Haywarden and Cameron got underway, I think Rielander was absorbing lessons from them as well. Cameron is the artist that is probably the most famous today in the sense that there are quite regular exhibitions of her work in museums today. There was one at the V&A not too long ago, for instance. Is her superior fame today justified? Um, I think the reason that Julie Margaret Cameron's work endures is because it has this incredible quality um, of being really psychologically charged, emotionally insightful, and somewhat ambiguous. And that really plays to contemporary sensibilities. It's work that we can look at now and, and really relate to. Kind of, uh, one of the subtexts of this exhibition, though, is that that psychological quality, that expressiveness, that, that inner state that comes out in the individuals that Cameron photographed, was not unique to her. And that, in fact, all four of the photographers in the exhibition do have that ability to somehow get inside the head of the sitter and bring something out that's maybe even very hard to describe in words. It's that feeling of evoking identity rather than just describing identity. When we think about the photographs that were made in the 1840s, I think we very often regard them as, and, and often rightly so, I think, as stiff and wooden and somehow unnatural. They don't look like people we can really relate to. It's in this period, and particularly with these four photographers, that the camera becomes liberated and we suddenly have a feeling that we're in the presence of another person. And that presence comes across in picture after picture after picture. There are many, many famous people depicted on the walls around us. What was the intention of the artists involved? Were they aware that they wanted their work to live on in posterity, or was it, was it simply about describing interesting faces? I'm not sure that they were interested in their work living on in posterity, and I don't know if any artist really goes into the task of making art thinking, what will it look like 100, 200 years from now? Um, and yet, I do think that they were aware that they were working with some people who were really defining culture at that time. So you have people like Alfred Lord Tennyson, Charles Darwin, Ellen Terry, some people who really redefined their respective fields. 
It must have been extraordinarily exciting because even as they were working to create this new reinvention of photography, they were working with people who were reinventing poetry, reinventing science, reinventing acting. And it, there's a sense that there's a collective avant-garde that's at work at that time. Is, is there an element, therefore, of these artists wanting photography to join that sort of very rich cultural hierarchy? I think there's a collective sense of excitement, and you can see it in this exhibition, that things are unsettled, things are changing, it's dynamic. They're living in a really rapidly evolving time. And I'm not sure that they would have set themselves against other fields and and even thought of themselves as leading the field necessarily, but that they absorbed all the the change and the, the energy of all these different things that were changing at that time. And since things were so unsettled, it was like a a new frontier had opened all across um, British culture and and in the arts and in the sciences and in humanities. There were all kinds of things being tested and tried. They were very much part of that conversation, and I think they would have seen themselves as sympathetic in a way to the, the... pioneers of science in Victorian era or, uh, or of literature and so on. Tell me about the technical differences between these four artists' work, because obviously there are great similarities, but they are four individuals. It's interesting because at times it's really easy to confuse the four photographers, and in the course of putting this ex- exhibition together, we did have moments where we really had to study very carefully who was the author of a particular photograph because they can be confused and there are elements of the exhibition that explore those stylistic similarities but one of the things that I think is exciting about this period is you have the beginning of photographic style I mean there's no doubt that you can tell Claudet daguerreotypes from Beard daguerreotypes sometimes and there are stylistic elements in earlier periods of time. But the idea that a photographer would actually have a distinctive vocabulary, a visual vocabulary that was their own, that they would have a signature way of making pictures, that's completely new. And you see that evolving in this exhibition. You see Julie Margaret Cameron, Cameron pick up an idea from Oscar Rielander and run with it and make it her own. Or you see... Uh, Clementina Haywarden pick up an idea from Lewis Carroll and absorb that and reinterpret it. This aspect of learning, experimenting and reinterpreting is something that's happening constantly in this period with these four artists. Philip, thank you very much. Thank you. Victorian Giants is at the National Portrait Gallery until the 20th of May. And that's all for this week. The new print edition of the Art Newspaper is just out. You can subscribe to that at theartnewspaper.com. You can tell us what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. The next podcast is out next Friday and we'll see you then.